The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at www.overlandpark.cc. Welcome to Overland Park Community Church, and I'm glad to see you all here this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, as we'll once again jump into the Word today, see what the Lord has for us. We come to a section in the, the Scripture where in this passage, and I shared this with you last, last week, is that Paul, he likes to really weight the front part of his letters with loads of doctrine. And a lot of people, they're afraid of that word doctrine. I mean, you hear it in the, in the, in the church, in the kingdom sometimes, like, yeah, man, I, I don't, like, doctrines mess people up. And I think they're confusing doctrine with denomination, okay? So denomination is when you're, in a, in a certain group, doctrine is a teaching, and doctrine is really, really important. As a matter of fact, denominations are kind of categorized by their doctrine, and so that's, that's why we have different denominations, because people settled in on positions of different things, but doctrine is extremely important because your doctrine will determine your behavior. It's about what you believe. You should say, well, what is this, what is the church, what is the doctrine of this church? Well, it's the Word of God, okay? So on the, like we, we look at the Word of God, and we're not a church who says, well, you know, most of it's pretty solid. Like we're looking at it and saying, no, we're yielding to the Word. Like that's our doctrine. The Word teaches us about Jesus. The Word teaches us about the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And so as we look at everything we get about our salvation from the Word, we're saying that the Word can be trusted and we trust it in all points. And so Paul, he waits heavily on the front of his letters with doctrine. And then he goes to the section, second section of his letter, and he gets into a lot more practical stuff about what does all of that heavy doctrine equate to in, in our lives on a daily basis. And so uh, today, kind of, he starts talking a little bit, we see some balance, now, I kind of got a funny story that I want to share with you that I think illustrates well what Paul's trying to say here. Um, moving up here in 2011 to kind of close the church down, restart it, um, and get, you know, like there's a lot of remodeling. You'll hear me talk about this a, a, a lot because it, it had a major, uh, there was a major part of my life for a, a six-month period that was just, just, from sun up to well past sundown, working on the physical structure of the inside of this building. And so we, we totally renovated this space and, and cleaned it up, modernized it. And, uh, and so we, you know, we ripped the carpet out, took the pews out, stained the floors, just all this work, and I'm just tired. And you're wanting to get to the fun part when you're starting to put the lighting and the, and the audio-visual stuff starts going in. And so we had gotten that far. And uh, I was up here one evening, and I was working, and we had some scaffolding. Imagine this room totally empty, and so we had this scaffolding about three. Usually, we'd have about three sections on it, and it was on wheels, and we could roll it around, and we could work on different things in the building. So I was up here at about 11 o'clock in the evening by myself, trying to just get a little bit more done, and... uh, (laughs) Everything was, everything was finished, like physically. We were starting to work on, on the install of these lights and things. 
So I needed to get the scaffolding on the stage. And so the best way to get the scaffolding, like, on the stage would be to tear it down and rebuild it on the stage. But it's only two feet high. And so I rolled the scaffolding up to the front of the stage. These stairs are movable. They weren't here. And I thought, well, all I got to do is just pick this side up and roll it forward. And then I'll get back down on the floor and I'll pick that side up and I'll just scoot it right on up here and I won't have to tear all that down by myself and rebuild it because it's, it's probably about a 40-minute process by yourself to tear it down and put it back together. It's much more efficient and I like efficiency, amen? And so all is going well as I lift it up and I put it up here. So imagine me down on the floor and I've got half the scaffolding rolled back to here. The drum kit is not there. And I pick the other side up, and I come forward, and as I'm coming forward, <laughs> the wheel falls out of this side. Boom. I think there's a big wheel about that, but it's not light. And I, th- I can't remember where it hit, but I think it may have hit down there. And so I'm like, okay, well, I can't set this thing down. I think, no, I did. I got it up. I said, well, I'll get it on up there. It'll be okay. And so I went. And I set it down, and when I set it down, this side tilted, and that wheel fell off. Now at 11 o'clock at night, by myself in the church, I have three sections of scaffolding tilted on two wheels. I can't call anybody because I'm holding this thing. And so I I literally am like, I'm talking to the Lord right now. Because if this thing falls, it's going into the walls. It's tearing up work we've already done. And I, I'm just straining and struggling and pushing. And, and I get the, I finally pick one wheel up and I get it. And then I kind of lean all the way around the other side. And I'm like trying to get the other wheel. And it was, it was like a 20-minute a ordeal. I was exhausted. And I was stressed to that. Like just, ah. But I finally got it. And then I sat down right there and I talked to the Lord. And I said, thank you, Lord, for bringing me through that. That's where Paul's taking us. Like as we get into this section of the scripture and we begin to think about all of the doctrine, all of the promises. See, he, he, he's unpacked for us. You are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Yes! Like you have the spiritual wealth of Jesus. Yes! But now he's gonna say, you gotta struggle and strain with all of that. See, here's here's what happens in the church a lot is that we want to jump from chapter 3 to chapter 6 because in chapter 6 we have that famous um, passage of Scripture about spiritual warfare uh, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and and forces of darkness and like all these things going on in the heavenly realms. And so he says we have the armor of God, the the helmet of salvation, the the breastplate of righteousness. And we're like, man, you you just got to put on the armor of God and you'll be okay. And so we like to jump from chapter 3 that finishes up about our spiritual wealth to chapter 6 that talks about all of our spiritual weapons and we don't want to go through the rest of chapter 4 and 5 because that's where it teaches us that although we do have all this wealth and all that weaponry, there's a whole lot of struggle that comes on in the battle that w- for us to be able to wear that. See, we want what we want to do is we want the strength without the struggle. We want the promise without the problem, and we want the victory without the vexation. 
And I'm reminded of, I believe it's the Geico commercial. And the, the ladies are putting the pictures on their wall. You seen that commercial? And it's like the social media where you post your pictures on the wall, but they're actually putting them on the wall. And the one little lady says, no, 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 that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And it doesn't work like that. You don't get the strength without the struggle. You don't get the promise without the problem. You don't get the victory without the vexation. Like we can look at everybody in the New Testament and we see, man, there was struggle, struggle, struggle. And so as we look in this section of the word, the, 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 the teaching of Paul begins to shift and the Holy Spirit shows us how this actually is supposed to work. And so the word is getting ready to teach us. Are you ready for that? Oh, come on. Who was that? Like, I like that enthusiasm. Is that, so I want you to know, like, man, it's been encouraging. I've been coming at you. I've been pouring the love out on you, and I'm still going to do that. But you need to buckle your seatbelt because now you're getting to the section of the letter in Ephesians where there are some expectations for you as a body that belongs to Jesus Christ on how you are to live this stuff out. And, and we see that it's a, a lot about balance, and Paul's going to show us that as the Holy Spirit allows him to write for us. So we look in verse 1, and he says this, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Here's the first thing Paul says, dear church, balance your spiritual wealth with your walk. Like he says, you have all of this wealth, and he uses these three terms that I think are, are are worth for us kind of unpacking a little bit. The first one is, is prisoner. It's the, the Greek word desmios, and it means, like when we think of prisoner, we think of somebody behind bars looking through. But the word, um, the meaning of the word is tied up or bound, okay? And so when it says, when Paul says, as a prisoner for the Lord, what he's saying there is you are tied up and bound by Jesus, now, in life, when we look at um, living out the practical implications of our faith and, and who we are as people, we're always getting tied up and bound by something. And in every decision and every point of behavior, whether we're at work, in the home, um, whether, you know, whatever we're doing, we're either being tied up and bound by Jesus or tied up and bound by the enemy. And that's why this letter is going to finish on spiritual warfare, is he's showing that this is how this works, is that you are, you are to be a person who is tied up and bound by Jesus. You are a prisoner for Jesus, and you willingly walk into that, um, that, 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 that ownership of Christ in your life, and you're allowing him to tie you up, and you're denying yourself so that the enemy can't tie you up. Here's the second word we need to unpack. It is the word calling, and it comes from the Greek word klesis, and it means an invitation to a feast. And a feast during the time of this writing would be equivalent to a party. So we are prisoners for the Lord who are invited to a party, and it's a party with our lives. Like, he, he says, live a life. Like, you, you have a calling to live a life. And so there's an invitation to be a prisoner of the Lord that ought to be like a party for us to take part in. And then the last word that, that, that is extremely important in this verse is the word worthy. And it comes from the word axios. And it means after a godly sort, literally bringing up the other beam of the scales. Okay? Worthy of the calling. So imagine, if you will, chapters one through three, boom, your spiritual wealth. Like it's, and you're, it's so heavy, all that wealth. 
And what Paul is beginning to teach us is that we take the practicality of our faith and we begin to balance it with all the wealth that we have. So our lives are not meant to be lived where where they're just heavy with all the wealth and there's nothing that's changing about our lives. And so in this, people, what Paul is trying to say is people are watching your life and the question is, can they see Jesus in you? Like, is it apparent to the people that you interact with this week that you are a prisoner of the Lord? That's what's being taught here. And so we are to represent Christ as prisoners of the Lord. And so the word is insisting that there be balance between profession and practice. You don't just get to profess that you're a believer without the practice to balance out what you're professing to believe. That's what Paul is trying to say. He's saying, look, the Holy Spirit is allowing me to write all this to you and teach you all of this, and you are wealthy, and because of all that wealth, it can shift your life, and your life can be imbalanced. Your practice can balance out what you profess, and then he begins to lay out the criterion for uh, us being able to bring up the wealth so that we're walking in balance and, and, and in life and we're living out the practicality that he wants us to live. So look at verse two. And he says, be, get ready, church. Come on, this is like, you're gonna walk out of here and there's gonna be some expectation. Like, and it's not expectation of the pastor. It's expectation of Jesus Christ, whom if you are claiming that you know him, you are a prisoner of his. This is what he says that he expects of you. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Dear church, learn to be overjoyed instead of annoyed. You're that person that gets on your nerves at work? Dear church, learn to be overjoyed instead of annoyed. Now, there are four graces that he uses to serve, that serve to balance our calling with our character. And so he uses these four words, and and they're all qualities of healthy relationships. And so in order for you to have a relationship that you can look at and say, is this relationship healthy in my life? These are the criterion that the scripture uses for us as prisoners for the Lord to balance out our wealth with our walk. And the first one is humility. Now, what does that mean? It means to lower self while raising others. Sometimes we get the lower self and we can say, well, I'm going to lower myself in this situation. But to be a humble person, you have to lower yourself and raise another person up. So as we look at our relationships and we're trying to be people who are overjoyed instead of annoyed, it requires that we have humility. And who do we, who do we, where do we learn humility? Can we be humble people? Well, we look at the one who we're prisoners for that has us tied up, that is indwelling us through the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and we see unbelievable humility. Though being God took on the form of a human being and came down and made himself what? A little lower than the angels. Angels. Why did he make himself lower than the angels? So that he could raise us up. And so what does he expect from us? Is that we are humble people that will lower ourselves and raise other people up. But then he goes on further and he uses the word gentleness. Gentleness is considerateness. And it is, it is really like What does it mean to be gentle? Like if you're a man, do you want somebody to describe you as gentle? Sometimes we, gentle and meekness, they kind of have the same 
um, uh, idea sometimes. And, and so meekness in the world is often thought of as weakness. But as the Scripture teaches us, meekness is not weakness. And when we look at what the Scripture means when it calls us to be gentle people, in the Greek language, this word is used um, for several different things. And one of them is for soothing medicine. And so they would use this same word that they use for gentleness uh, to describe soothing medicine. It was also used for a broken colt and a soft wind. And what do we have there in common? We have all powerful things under control. And so it is the ability to have power but control your power. You are a gentle individual. And men, you can see this taught throughout the New Testament. You jump over to the epistle of James, and it talks so much about controlling our tongue. If we're gentle people, we're able to control our tongues in the heat of the moment because we've learned to take on the gentleness of Christ, and we can control our strength even though we know we could let it out and we could, we could wreak havoc in the situation or the relationship or whatever it may be. And so we need to be people who have power that is under control. And then here's the last one that he uses that will bring our, our, our life, it'll balance the wealth with our walk, is he uses the word patience, and it comes from the, the, the Greek word makrothumio, and it means reluctance to avenge wrongs. Let that one sink in. Like, man, if you can't get anything else from everything I teach you today that the Lord is calling us to follow, that as prisoners of the Lord, we need to be people who are reluctant to avenge like when somebody does us wrong. Like not, when somebody does us wrong, we're like, well, I'll tell you, I'm going to. Somebody cuts us off, and we're going to cut them off, and we're going to wave at them with one finger. That's not reluctance to avenge wrongs. He's like, this is the kind of people that we're going to be. And if, if we are always being annoyed, then we'll never be overjoyed. So he says to us, like, we got to become the kind of people that we, we recognize our spiritual wealth and we exercise these spiritual traits that are ours because of Christ and we're able to uh, utilize it to control ourselves, be humble, gentle uh, uh, people. And then um, uh, he uses the final one, is, is forbearance, okay? Bearing with one another in love. What does that mean? <laughs> Hold him up. Put up with others' faults because we are aware that we have our own. That's what you got. That's why he loads the front end of the book with wealth to teach us to really understand all that God has given us because what is happening is, is when we look at our own lives, we see that God is being humble with us. He's being gentle with us. He is being patient with us. He is forbearing us. He is raising us up, and he's putting up with our faults, and, and he's realizing that. And so he wants us to look at how, he wants each one of us to look at how he's treating us and go, wow. Like when something happens in my life, this needs to be my response because I realize how God is treating me. It, the great commandment, um, Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in all of, uh, of the law? And he said, well, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul. And he says, the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think that when Jesus is saying there, when he says the second one is like it, I think he's saying when you are actually loving God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, 
you'll love your neighbor like you love yourself. You'll be able to be gentle. You'll be able to be patient. You'll be able to be um, a person who uh, if forbears and you raise other individuals up. You can um, be all of the things that God wants you to be. And so we look at all of this, and what is, what is Paul teaching us? Differences are designed to unite us, not divide us. But in the world, they divide us. Like, differences for people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ can often be things that we look at and we make judgments about, and they drive us away from each other. But in the kingdom, as we see the differences that we have, they're, they're supposed to bring us together and unite us because we are living above the curse. And so the question I have for you is, have you learned to appreciate differences in other people? And, and when you do that, you will begin to realize there's spiritual fruit being grown in your life. Like all of these things we talked about are characteristics of the spiritual fruit that we find in Galatians uh, chapter 5, I believe it's verse 22, is, is that th- these, are the, these are the character qu- traits of Christ, and as we spend time with Christ, they will gra- grow in our lives. The only way to produce this fruit is to spend time with Christ, because the more time you spend with Christ, you'll realize the more he is practicing this on you, which in turn makes you want to practice on others around you, like your spouse. Right? I'm not going to ask you guys to raise your hand when the last time you got into an argument was. Because it happens to us. Like we fly off the handle, right? But if we will spend time with the Lord and we begin to think, whoa, 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 am I raising my husband up right here? Amen. Am I raising my wife up? Am I, am I forbearing with her in this moment in time because I am a prisoner of the Lord? That's what Paul is trying to show us how this is supposed to function. And so without these qualities, what happens is we jeopardize unity. Yet, as they're described, it sounds impossible. It's like, how could we do this? And, and, and the reason that we feel that way is because it's not the way of the world, but what I will tell you today, it is the way of Jesus, whom you are a prisoner. And so we don't get the right to say, well, that's not how everybody else does it. Well, maybe everybody else doesn't know Jesus, but you do, and that's how you're supposed to do it. Amen, Lord. Like, that's it, okay? And so then he goes into verse 3, and he's going to show us how it happens. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Here's the third thing. Dear church, With effort, you can do this. Even though it sounds so difficult to do, dear church, with effort, you can do this. The church has no place for division. You say, that's right. I don't want our church to be divided. If your home is divided, our church is divided. If your workplace is divided because of you, our church is divided. Because our church is not this building. Our church is the people. And wherever there's division in your life, there is division in the church because you are part of the local body of Christ. And so OPCC is how we refer to ourselves as a local body of believers. But we are part of the body of Christ. And we are supposed to be breathing unity into the world, not division. And so it is very important that as we walk these things out, we understand we have a responsibility to match our profession with our practice. And so we have to make every effort to do this, is what Paul says. Now, make every effort suggests a couple of things. One, it suggests difficulty. Like it doesn't say that's a piece of cake. It's like there's a struggle here. There's a, there's a bit of a work. You have all the wealth, but to let that wealth come into your life on a practical way so that your profession maxes your practice, it's going to take some effort on your part. And it also um, suggests that with uh, determination, we are able to overcome it. 
and peace. So he says, make every effort to keep the peace of the spirit through the bond of peace. And so when we're making the effort, it's like peace is coming into our lives and holding the unity as a class together. And we're getting it together. And we're beginning to live this thing out on a daily basis. And here's what we have to understand is that the Holy Spirit leads us. Like, Do you believe that? Do you believe the Holy Spirit leads us? You must be willing to be led. Like the Holy Spirit is always leading, but we got to be people who are be willing to be led by the Holy Spirit or we're introducing what the Bible refers to quenching the Spirit. So therefore, we're not overjoyed, we're annoyed, and we're not experiencing the wealth being balanced with our walk because we're not providing effort to do it. Why does the, like, why, this begins, you begin to see how this um, helps you to understand things like the scripture that says, work out your salvation. Well, I thought I was saved by grace. Well, you are saved by grace. Well, what does it mean, work out your salvation? It means that if you're saved by grace, you need to work that grace into your life and let others see that what you're professing saved you is making you change how you practice in your life. That's what it means. It means you work out what your wealth is already yours and you work it into your lives. Otherwise, you're like a billionaire who never spends a dime. Nobody wants to be around that dude. He's just an old miser. But you get around a billionaire that wants to spend money and guess what happens? He wants to have parties. He wants to have you over. He wants to bless you. He wants to pour into your life because he's being gracious with all that he has. You are a spiritual billionaire. That's what the Lord is trying to show us through the word. And as we practice all of that wealth that is in our spiritual account and we work it into our lives, then we're blessing people all around us, which is what the body of Jesus ought to be doing, hadn't it, as it works itself around the planet. We have to be moving in and around and through uh, people and using what God has put in us. And so we must do our part to keep the peace because it is our obligation. And our part is to focus on Jesus, not ourselves. It is the rule of what I would refer to as third. Just remember third. Jesus first, others second, me third. Before you open your mouth, just think third. Okay? Maybe we should say something like, don't be a turd, always think third. Right? Yeah, there we get some t-shirts. All right, get it designed, Corey. And then and that'll help us, like, if we, if we, if we just think that. <laughs> I've lost you all. You're, like, thinking, you're thinking what the shirt's going to look like and everything. I know. Okay, so that's what we need to do, though. It's like, that's how we control it. So, oh, whoa, wait a minute here. The Holy Spirit's trying to lead me. I need to put myself in third place. And that's how you end up being a gentle, humble, um, patient individual who has forbearance in their lives. And so then he finishes it up, and this is where it's really kind of cool. There is one body, and, and this is the why behind it all. Like he's starting to get into, like, that the, the, we're, we're unified. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And the big idea is, dear church, the Lord is in the mix. Like Shea says that all the time. You ever heard him say that? So to honor Shay, he bought me this shirt. It's Shea Day. The Lord is in the mix. That's what this verse is teaching us. 
The Lord is in the mix. Now, one, when he uses this word one, and, and we see this idea of the oneness, if a believer cannot get along with the Lord, he cannot get along with others. If you cannot get along with the Lord, you cannot get along with others. But if you can get along with the Lord, you will get along with others. Now, here's where it gets hard, guys, is it starts in the home. Like the, the, You're going to see as we move from chapter 4 to chapter 5, he goes through familial relationships, husband, wife, children, and he uses slaves and masters, which I think we could equate to a employment in our day and time. And so we look at this, and, and that's where he's headed. And so he's saying, like, we look at our homes, and this is how we can begin to figure out, hey, we got to figure out how to work this stuff into our home because that's a true test of how well we're doing with it, and it is hard to do in the home. Like, if your wife does all the grocery shopping, it is hard to be forbearing in that situation, right? Sometimes you see, what you spent, what? If you do all the cleaning in your house, it's hard to do, be forbearing with your husband, Right? Where's the ladies at? <laughs> like, if, you, if, if you're always pulling the weight and the husband's never helping, then it's, it's, it's hard. But, but that's a good test for it to show up. And so we're, we're to be patient and all of these things in this place. So then he breaks down each of the ones. One body. We all belong to it and help each other. Like, that's why it's so important for us to be part of a local fellowship in, in the body of the church. It's because we help each other. It's hard. And when we meet in smaller, you know, relationships and, and groups and we talk and we discuss and we share, we can help each other as the body of Christ to, to accomplish what it is that, that the Lord is, is asking us to accomplish. One spirit. The same spirit um, indwells all of us, and so we all belong to each other. I belong to you. You belong to me. Like that, that, that's the way it works is why do we belong to each other? Because the spirit of God is in us. There's one, uh, one, uh, one hope. What is that? Well, for everybody who understands all of the truth that I've been proclaiming today, you realize that Jesus is going to return. That is the blessed hope of the resurrection of, of Christ and the believer. And we look forward to the time that Jesus will return to the planet to take his body, the church, to paradise and recreate a new heaven and a new earth here where we're at. And so we look forward to that. And those who look forward to that are peacemakers. Those who don't ever think about it are troublemakers. Like, how do you, how do you keep yourself in check? You just think about it all the time. Man, the Lord is coming back sometime. Like, he's coming back to get me because I'm part of his body. And so I have that hope. So whatever happens to me, I can always remain constant in my faith. One Lord, if we obey the same Lord, we should be able to walk together in unity. And so there's the lordship of the husband. There's the lordship of the wife. And when the, uh, the, uh, the, the wife has lordship in her life and the husband has lordship in his life, then they can walk together in unity. If only the husband has lordship and the wife doesn't, there will be disunity because we see that there's one faith. And when one departs from the faith, it always brings disunity into the home. Because why? I mean, what does it mean to depart from the faith? It means just stop listening to where the Lord is guiding you, and it just brings about disunity in the home. There is one baptism. And what is that about? Well, when we are converted, the Bible teaches that we are baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
And so when it says one baptism, it's not talking about water baptism. It's talking about spiritual baptism. And when does spiritual baptism happen? Well, every time we see it in the New Testament, it happens when a person comes to the point that they realize that Jesus Christ was Savior. They confess him as Lord of their lives, and they receive the Spirit of God. And Boom, at that point, we are baptized with the Spirit. So what is water baptism about? Water baptism is about, it is a symbol that the inward transformation and the baptism of the Spirit has happened, and I'm going outward to everybody else and saying, I want you to know. Like I've had an inward transformation. And everywhere I see in the New Testament, a person has an inward transformation before they're baptized. Like most of the accounts that we have in the New Testament, people are adults when they get baptized because they need to be able to make the profession that they have received Christ as their Savior and have been baptized in the Holy Spirit. And once they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, they go into the water baptisms as a a symbol that the inward transformation has taken place and I'm going public with it. Like They would get excommunicated from their families Because Jews were going and saying, I believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And they would go out into the public places, into the river, and and, and they would be baptized in the Jordan River. And then they would be excommunicated out of the Jewish community, meaning they couldn't work. They couldn't couldn't buy from Jewish vendors. They couldn't do any of those things. And that's why when the Spirit of God came down in in Jerusalem in Acts, you see people selling their possessions. Why? To take care of people who made the outward profession, were getting baptized and excommunicated from, from Judaism. And what was happening? The church was coming out of the ground, man. And so that, that, that's why it's important for us to follow the Lord in one baptism. And then he says, one God and Father of all. And that's where we get our, he is in the mix. And we have to focus on the oneness. Now let me read verse 6 again, because I think it's very encouraging. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so we're supposed to be realizing that as we balance our spiritual wealth with our walk and we're working to be people who are overjoyed instead of annoyed and we're using effort to do this, that the Lord is in the mix on that. And so, like when we're, when we're praying and talking to the Lord, it needs to be about how can I, not how can you give me what I want, but how can I do what you want, Jesus? Like how can I be a gentle person today? How can I I be a person who's humble today? Lord, help me to be a person who's forbearing with others. Help me to be patient. Like this This is what has to master our minds. Why? Because we are prisoners for the Lord. Now, what's really cool about this, and we'll see it in a couple of weeks, is that there's always an earthly representation of what God is doing spiritually and who he is, like the, the Trinity. And we see that just as God is in the mix. Jesus, the Lord, is in the mix with us. Earthly fathers are to be in the mix as well with their families. One of the greatest things you can do, men, for your family is to be in the mix spiritually. Like If you're disconnected spiritually with Jesus in your home, your kids are going to be disconnected with Jesus because God has set it up and he has ordained that the Father will come and he will be in the mix with the family. 
He will be in the mix with his spouse. He will be in the mix with his children. He will be in the mix at work. Like That's the way this thing is supposed to work. And we'll see that when we get into the next chapter. We, we, go, we start unpacking all of it. He shows us how is the family, how is the home supposed to, to function and operate. And so be encouraged by that because it's coming. But know that even as you're attempting to be in the mix with all that is around you, the Lord is in the mix. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.